Lord, I thank you so much for this Friday. Um, it's the last Unicoi, or the last month of Unicoi for this church here, and for the seniors here, uh, they only have four left. Um, so I pray, God, that you would um, just bless and help us to really cherish each night. Uh, we can't get it back after it's over, and so life is short, and so uh, God, help us to uh, live for you and to love one another and uh, help us to be changed by your word tonight, God. Um, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the title of my sermon is called The Way of the Sojourner. And as I begin the sermon, I want to ask, are you guys familiar with the term uh, couch surfing? Are you guys familiar with that term? Ish. Okay, some of you guys, some of you guys are. Uh, Urban Dictionary, which you shouldn't always trust their <laughs> definitions, defines couch surfing as a cheap form of lodging used mainly by college students or recent college grads where one stays on like a friend's couch rather than a hotel. So um, <clears throat> basically, if you're saying like, oh, I'm going to go to New York this weekend, um, and then your friend says, oh, isn't that really expensive? But you say, oh, no, I have a friend living there. I'm going to couch surf with them. You're going to stay at their apartment. You're just going <laughs> to mooch off of them. Um, so that would be an example of couch surfing. Now, that's, you're not really settling down anywhere. You're just wandering. You're just going from place to place. And the Bible has, I guess, a spiritual word for house, or not house surfing, couch surfing. The term is to be a sojourner to sojourn uh, to one place to another. And it would be like, let's say you are going to Kansas City, but you have a layover in Dallas. And so you stop in Dallas, you're not settling there, that's not your final destination, but you stop there on the way to Kansas City. So Dallas is a layover. Your time in the airport, in the bathrooms, in the restaurants, mingling with uh, random airport um, strangers, that's a layover. You're not uh, unpacking and making it your home. And so to be a sojourner in the Bible, very similar. You're passing through a certain place. Uh, you're a temporary residence. You sojourn from place to place, never feeling completely at home. And you kind of have to uproot yourself. And so in today's passage, Jacob, the father of Joseph, he kind of recognizes that he's been sojourning his entire life, moving from place to place, being patient on God's promise uh, to give them land, uh, the promised land. But now Jacob, he finds himself relocating to Egypt, so he's moving and uprooting uh, once again, and so he's sojourning once again. And so uh, my next slide has a recap of um, the last week. So if you remember last week, on the scene on the left is a very important scene. God meets Jacob on the way to Egypt, and he says, um, <clears throat> Jacob, I will be with you. Um, and I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again. And so God himself appears to Jacob, telling him to continue to sojourn and uh, relocate and move to Egypt. And then the picture on the right is when Jacob and uh, Joseph reunite, dad and son, father and son, after so many years. And it's a very heartbreaking um, but joyful reunion. So that's a recap of last week, and so um, the relocation process is still happening. They still have to go before Pharaoh to get approval, um, and so that's a process we're going to unpack today. Um, and the, the concept of sojourning is very important. I'm going to unpack that um, in the so what. So in the next slide, we'll kind of have a sermon preview of uh, today. So as always, we have 
The first part of the sermon, we're going to explain the biblical narrative, and then the second part, we're going to answer the so what. Um, so if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to Genesis chapter uh, 47. We will be there for today's sermon. Genesis chapter 47. All right, as you guys are turning there, so Jacob, Joseph, their families reunited, but they still have to be approved to actually settle down in Egypt. So what we're going to read next is Joseph going before Pharaoh, trying to say, hey, Pharaoh, this is my family. Please let them settle down. All right, so that's kind of the scene that we're walking into. So Genesis chapter 47, let's read verses uh, 1 to 4 in chapter 47. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My fathers and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his, and from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. All right, uh, if we can go to the next slide, this will have a picture of basically one of the brothers, like, we're just shepherds, let us stay in Goshen. All right, so that's what Joseph is trying to uh, mediate that process. And Goshen, it's not in the center of Egyptian life. It's a little scattered away. It's like, technically, we live in L.A. County. So when your relatives come out of, from, um, I don't know, overseas, they're like, oh my gosh, you're from L.A.? You're from, like, Hollywood? Um, and so, oh, thank you, Tim. Thank you. So they might assume, like, oh, you're from Hollywood? And you're like, no, 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 I'm from Diamond Bar. <laughs> Very different, not Hollywood. It's on the outskirts of L.A. County. And so that's kind of what Goshen is like. It's not in the middle of Egyptian life, so they wouldn't really be impacted by their culture, but it's far enough away where they wouldn't be impacted or influenced by pagan culture, but they can still kind of settle down. That's sort of what it's like, like Hollywood versus Diamond Bar, but it's still L.A. County. And so Pharaoh questions them, like, uh, what do you guys do? And they say, we're, we're just, we're your servants. We're, we're just shepherds. We just want a place to stay. You know, things are really bad in Canaan. Um, our fathers were shepherds. We're not trying to overthrow the kingdom of Egypt. We're, we're just trying to survive. Um, and so this is what Pharaoh says to Joseph in verses uh, 5 to 6. Let's read on. Verse 5, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my, li of my livestock. And so, let's stop there. The request is granted. So Pharaoh kind of does two things. Number one, he provides land for them, the best of the land, as we see in verses 6, but he also provides potential occupation. He says, well, if any of you guys are good at taking care of livestock, I've got some animals here. Uh, you can take care, of them, take care of us. And so, he gives them the best. He blesses them. It would be like if we had refugees coming into Diamond Bar, um, our government could say, oh, you guys could stay on the border of Pono and Diamond Bar. It's, it's okay. Or you guys could stay in the country. That's a really nice place. So Pharaoh, in a sense, gives them the country, the, the best choice of Egypt. And so it's really generous. And it's still in the middle of a famine. So this is 
pretty incredible how generous um, Pharaoh is to, to uh, Joseph and his brothers. And so as we see this process um, um, being successful, I want us to remember God's promise. Remember God told uh, Abraham that I will make you into a great nation. And so the fact that Pharaoh is approving um, the resettlements, it is God's hand at work. We don't see God's name in here, but it's God behind the scenes, moving and pulling strings in order to keep his promise. And this is very important. And so after they are approved, now Joseph brings his dad Jacob to stand before Pharaoh. Let's see their exchange. Look at, let's look at verses uh, 7 to 12. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. That's really old. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. Verse 10, And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his fathers, his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his fathers, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Remember, the entire family of, uh, of Jacob is about 70 people moving from Canaan all the way to Egypt. And so, again, God's promises is being fulfilled. And Jacob, who's really old, 130 years old, I can't even imagine what he would look like that old, but he blesses Pharaoh. And again, I hope this is reminding you of something of God's promise in Genesis chapter 12, when God says, I will bless those who bless you. And because Pharaoh is blessing the family of Jacob, now God, through Jacob, is blessing Pharaoh. And so God is keeping his promise. And then Pharaoh, he kind of asks, hey, uh, Jacob, how old are you? Jacob says 130 years old, but I don't want us to miss in verse 9. He describes it. He could have just said, I'm 130, and he could have waited. But he adds more to it in verse 9. He says, the days of the years of my sojourning, there's that word again, are 130 years. years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my, of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. So in that verse, we see the word sojourning twice. Both in his life, Jacob's life, but also in the life of his father, Isaac, and his father's father, Abraham. And the word sojourn, in other translations, you might see the word uh, pilgrimage. Um, that the years of their pilgrimage was 130 years old. And I believe I mentioned it earlier, but to sojourn somewhere is to merely pass through. It's just a layover. You're going to Kansas City, um, Dallas is your layover. It's just passing through. And we kind of learned something about Jacob. He's kind of been on the run his entire life. If you think about it, Jacob, remember he stole and deceived his brother. He sold the blessing and the birthright, and he was on the run from home. So he had to sojourn away from home. 
Uh, he runs to his uncle Laban, marries his two daughters, uh, Rachel and Leah, which leads to uh, 12 kids, which is the 12 brothers um, that we see here today. But then he also has to run away from Laban as well. Again, he's on the run. Then he settles down in Canaan, and then when the famine hits, again, he has to sojourn and uproot and move to Egypt. So all throughout Joseph or Jacob's life, he's on the run. There's been a lot of evil in Jacob's life. And so all they want, they just want to temporarily settle down in Goshen. And so where was Jacob's true home? If, he, if his entire life, he's just moving from place to place, what's his true home? Well, if you remember in Genesis chapter 12, God promises Abraham land, the promised land to be specific. But as you know the story of Jacob, he actually never is able to experience the promised land in the same way that Joshua, hundreds of years later, would experience the promised land. And so Jacob, for his entire life, would just be moving from place to place. So we'll unpack the idea of sojourning later in the so what, but I just want to make that note right here. So Jacob, or Joseph, he not only provides for his family, but now he's going to provide for the Egyptians, all right? So we're going to look at verses 13 to 17. So now J Joseph is not just interacting with his family, but the Egyptians go to him for help. And so let's see what happens in verses 13 to 17. Now there's no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I'll give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. So my next slide, hopefully this works. Maybe it's not working. Oh, this thing always, uh, maybe the battery or the distance <laughs> does not work. But I guess once the slide uh, picture's over, we're gonna see uh, Joseph providing um, for, uh, for the Egyptians. So we find that the famine, it's hitting Egypt really hard. It's not like Egypt is doing awesome and gives uh, Jacob and his family out of their abundance. Uh, they're kind of giving out when they're struggling. And this lasts over a year. So Jacob, or uh, Joseph, he comes up with a plan. You know what? You don't have any money, so uh, give me your livestock. It's like in Monopoly, when you land on someone else's property, you run out of money, and they say, okay, give me your property. So they just, you, you sell and you buy whatever you have. So that's kind of the same um, uh, concept. Oh yeah, here's a, a slide. Thanks, guys. Uh, so this is Joseph. He's acting all like really proud, like, hey, I just saved the economy. Um, give me your livestock, and um, you'll be saved. And like, they're really, really thankful. Um, so this lasts for another year. But you know what? After a year, their money runs out, or their, uh, their food runs out, and they have no other livestock. What will they trade for, trade with now? So let's look at verses 18 to uh, 22. Let's see what happens at the end of that year. 
And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. Verse 20, so Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So the Egyptians basically say, you know what, we have no more livestock, but they say, but we're willing to, uh, you can buy our land and we will be servants. You can buy us. We will be your servants forever. We just want to survive. And Joseph saves them. He says, okay, I will buy you and I'll buy your land. And take a step back now. Remember, remember where Joseph came from. Joseph was once thrown in a pit, forgotten by his brothers. Joseph was once forgotten by the cupbearer and rotting in prison. So Joseph, who was once a servant, a slave, because of God's grace, who raises him far above his station, now he's the one who purchases Egyptians for their um, as slaves, as servants, but in a nice way. I sometimes have like a theory like, huh, if someone wrote like a fan theory, I wonder if Potiphar and his wife got in line <laughs> buying grain. I wonder what they would think when they saw Joseph, the person they falsely accused, now in charge over them. That would be really interesting. So if you guys ever want to watch or write any fiction, I'd love to see uh, that story. And so Joseph says, you know what? Yeah, I'll buy your land and I'll buy you guys as servants. And this is his economic policy. Let's look at verses 23 to uh, 26. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day, that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So we'll stop there. Joseph basically says, okay, guys, I'll take care of you. I'll give you seed to, to sow the land so you can harvest the land. Just give me a fifth of the land. The other four fifths, you can keep for your family, your little ones. And so if you kind of do the math, which I think I'm doing correctly, let's say it's like $100, you just have to give 20 bucks to, to, to Pharaoh. That's like a fifth, I think. Uh, which sounds like a lot. It's like, oh, wow, that's a 20%. That's, that's a lot. Um, but if you work, I guess you kind of know what it's like to be taxed. Um, but Joseph, he could have been much more harsh. He, they were at his mercy. He could have been a much more harsh uh, ruler, but he's not. And the, the, uh, the Egyptians, they're grateful. And that's why they say, Joseph, you have saved us. And so we see there's a gratitude. There's a positive relationship between the two. And so again, we don't see God's name mentioned, really, so far, but we know that God is working behind the scenes. Last sermon, when God promises to be with Joseph, 
This is God's mysterious and hidden hand moving in the events of real life. And so Jacob's family is able to successfully settle down in Egypt. And Jacob is able to live out the remainder of his life, which is another 17 years. And so let's look at uh, verses 27 to, to 28. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the, life, the years of his life were 147 years. Isn't that a little poetic that Jacob is able to live another 17 years? Think about it, because when Joseph was 17 years old, that's when he was sold into slavery. But now that the family's together in Egypt and safe, it's almost like God is allowing in his grace Jacob to spend another 17 years. But this time, the brothers don't hate one another. They don't try to sell one another into slavery. They are at peace with one another. And guys, this just about does it in terms of getting the family of Jacob to Egypt. In a sense, it's mission accomplished. The entire family of Israel is now successfully in Egypt. Uh, for the next 17 years, they're able to be fruitful and multiply, and years after that. And now, seven, Jacob's life will now come to an end 17 years later, and that's what the next couple of chapters will expand. So, Let's read the last couple of verses, and we'll wrap up that narrative uh, exposition. Verses 29 to 31 says this. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me. In their bearing place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head, upon the head of his bed. And so the next slide, there we go. This is uh, old uh, Jacob getting ready to uh, live out the last years of his life. I know his face changes every sermon. I don't have consistency in my drawings, but uh, there's a uh, Joseph, um, agreeing and swearing to bury him. Now, if one of you guys put your hand under the thigh of your friend, that would be really weird. You might not be friends with your, that friend ever again. But back then, don't try it now, <laughs> but back then, that's how they um, made promises. That's, stop touching each other. <laughs> that's how they swore with one another. All right? So, <laughs> um, that's just what happened. It's like if we did fist bumps and they took a time machine, and they're like, what are you guys doing? Like, they would think that's weird. But back then, making a solemn promise, you would grab the thigh of the person that you were making a promise with. And if you remember, this has happened before. It's happened with Abraham. You guys remember that? A couple chapters earlier, earlier Abraham makes a servant promise him to find Isaac a good wife. Not a Canaanite wife, but a wife from his own tribe. So that's happened before. It's not out of nowhere. All right, so this is uh, Jacob's last wish, that he wants to be buried in Canaan, which is actually the promised land hundreds of years later. He wants to be buried with his fathers. And so we're going to pick up in the next couple weeks what happens next. Um, so now we kind of have to ask the question, um, so what? 
I just spent the last 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe longer, talking about uh, the story, but how is this supposed to impact my everyday life? What is the idea, this concept of sojourning, what does it have to do with my life? You remember I said earlier that Jacob described his own life as one of sojourning. And even hundreds of years later in the book of Exodus, the Israelites, they would sojourn through the wilderness for 40 years. And so even though today we see that God provides Egypt as a land, it's temporary. I guess if you consider like hundreds of years temporary, but in God's eyes, that's temporary. And in a sense, Egypt was just a layover. The promised land, that's the final destination. All right, so just like I said, if you're traveling to Kansas City, but you take a layover in Dallas, Dallas is just temporary. You're not supposed to unpack your bags. You're not supposed to apply for jobs when you're on the layover. It's like, no, you're just here for a day. Don't get too comfortable. You're on your way to your final destination. And I think there's a lot of um, connection for us today as Christians. Because I think the Bible describes us right now, you and me as sojourners in 2021. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, the author describes Abraham and Isaac as a people who were sojourners. They were exiles. They were aliens. They were strangers and foreigners in a different country, but they look forward to a better country, a heavenly one. So listen along as I read from Hebrews chapter 11, 13 to 16. These, meaning uh, Abraham, Isaac, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's stop there. So even in Hebrews, in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews describes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as people who live faithfully, but they actually never saw the promised land. They understood the promise that, okay, God made a promise that he would give um, the promised land, he would make us a great nation, but they died without ever seeing the realization of that promise. They died never seeing the fulfillment of that. And in Hebrews, it actually says that they desired a better country, a heavenly one. And that's heaven. That's the place where God dwells. And if you go on to the next chapter in Hebrews, it talks about that these heroes of the faith, uh, that because they are the great cloud of witnesses, that we ourselves, we run the race of life. We are sojourners in this life, and we fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So I hope you get it, that as Christians, if you consider yourself a Christian, you and I are sojourners on this earth. We run the race of life, eagerly awaiting a better and a better heavenly country, which is heaven. And the only way that we can have hope in heaven is if we trust in Jesus and in his blood that forgives us of our sins and uh, gives us new purpose to live for his kingdom. 
And so if I were to give a principle, I think I would just say it really in simple terms. It would just be this. Earth is just a temporary layover. Heaven is your final destination. If you live your life knowing that this earth is temporary, it's just a layover, don't get super comfortable, don't be consumed by the things and passions of this earth, this will help you get ready to live as if you're ready for heaven. And the implication of this is you are strangers on this earth. You are exiles on this earth. You are aliens on this earth. You are sojourners on this earth. People, if you truly try to live as a Christian, 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised that the world hates you. Don't be surprised if the world hates you if you try to live as a Christian. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. As a sojourner, if you see earth as just a layover, abstain, refrain, keep away from the passions of the flesh. On this earth, it's supposed to be difficult. No one promised life would be easy. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. You're going to struggle with your sin. You're going to struggle with the sins of other people. Imagine, if you would, if a soldier is deployed to another country. Let's say France. He has a mission to find the best pizza. <laughs> but what if he became too comfortable? What if he began to look for housing in France because he wanted to settle down? What if he met a nice lady that he wanted to marry, even though she was, I guess, the enemy? In a sense, this soldier forgot his mission. And for you, if you're a Christian, if you, you must see yourself as a sojourner, and you must be careful not to let your guard down and get too comfortable on this earth. If some of you guys live to 100 years old, let's say 130 years old, we'd probably be so wrinkly, and that'd be kind of funny. Um, that sounds like a long time. I'm sure it does. But if you compare 130 years old compared to an infinite amount of time in the afterlife, whether heaven or in hell, 130 years is nothing. That's just a drop in the bucket in the ocean of eternity. So if you truly want to be smart in life, it's not just about getting a 4.0 GPA. If you truly want to be smart, wouldn't you do the math and recognize that 100 years on earth is nothing compared to an eternity in the afterlife? That's just logical. That's not even any faith involved. That's just logical. And so if we are Christians, we must live and follow the way of the sojourner. And it doesn't mean that you have a live-free-or-die-hard attitude. It doesn't mean you go up to your parents and say, you know what, Kevin said I have to be a sojourner, so I'm not going to care about school because I'm going to heaven anyways. Why go to college? I'm going to heaven anyways. Why save the environment? It's going to be burned up anyways. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Why care about any of this? That's not what I'm trying to say. It's not a live-free-or-die-hard attitude. You should still be faithful in your schoolwork. You should still um, study hard because God has assigned you to be a student right now. But I'm just saying, don't be consumed by things like success or entertainments. Maybe you're aiming for a college like um, UCLA, Berkeley, Harvard. I'm telling you, as a sojourner, aim higher than that. 
and you're like, what? UCLA, Harvard? That is high. No, I'm saying aim higher. Because if you just get into UCLA and Harvard and you have, uh, you make a six-figure salary in the, in the future and you have a nice house, you impress a nice person, and you live comfortably at the, for the rest of your life, that's nice. But after 130 years, you can't take that with you. When you die, you can't take that with you. So isn't the truly smart thing to do is to live for eternity? Isn't that the smart thing to do? And so even at school, I'm not saying slack off in school. Work hard. God has assigned you to be a student. But what if you saw school as a mission field? Not just a place for you to do stuff to impress colleges, but a place for you to engage with other students so that they might, not, they might know Jesus. What if you built your friendships with non-believers in a way where they would see that you were different, that you were a Christ follower? And what if, through your efforts— God saved your friend. Now let's do the math. What's going to matter more? Getting to UCLA making, let's say, $50 million. That sounds like a lot. That probably is a lot. And you enjoy, you um, live life comfortably versus the soul of your friend being saved, which applies not just to the next 100, life, 100 years, but into eternity. Wouldn't that matter so much more? And the answer is yes. So I'm telling you, aim higher. Aim higher than UCLA or Harvard. There is a higher purpose for you because you're, you're telling me, okay, Kevin, you went to AP. You don't really know what you're talking about. You're right. I don't really know what I'm talking about, but your counselors are smart. Your counselors went to the UCLA's, the Berkeley's, the Harvard, and they'll be the first to tell you money is not everything in life. Getting to college, the college of your choice, that's not everything in life. So let them, I'll let them speak from their experience because I don't really have the intellect to tell you, hey, it's not all that because I don't really know. <laughs> so talk to your counselor. They know. And you might think that's really abstract to aim higher to really live out my faith. You know, I want to share this morning, I was in a Christian club meeting with a group from Diamond Bar High School. Some of our students are in there, uh, Joe and Carissa, and we were brainstorming what does it look like to reach a high school campus for Jesus? What would it look like to train students to go out and witness to non-believers? What would it look like to hold rallies in classrooms, cafeterias, uh, the quad area, and give free pizza to get them in, and share the gospel? This seems like big dreams, but I've seen this with my own eyes at another high school, Wilson High School, a couple years ago, and we're brainstorming, could this happen at Diamond Bar? And I was never the evangelistic person growing up. I hid my faith, but I feel like God is challenging me right now that I want to aim higher. <clears throat> and so if you're at Diamond Bar, be ready maybe this upcoming year because I want to do something. There are souls at stake. It's not just about making money in the future and impressing your parents. There are souls hanging in the balance between heaven or hell. And if you just live your life to make money, you are aiming so low you are aiming so low in the ground, and you are walking right into the plans of the enemy. Satan's thinking, oh yeah, let them aim for money. As long as they're distracted from the Great Commission, that's all I care about. As long as souls go jumping into hell happy, that's all he cares about. So I'm telling you, aim higher. There's a higher purpose with our life. And as sojourners, we have to remember that this is just temporary. We all live forever. 
It's a matter of location, not um, length of time. So as we remember the words of Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, where we eagerly await a Savior, Jesus. So let me ask you, where is your home? Do you consider heaven your home? Or have you gotten so comfortable on this earth with your life plan? Maybe some of you right now, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian and you're content with life, the way life is going. And to you guys, I would say I'm so happy you're here. I'm not trying to shame or make you feel bad. I'm just so happy you're here. I hope you see that there's something different about Christianity, that there's something that makes us distinct in a very deep way. And I would encourage you to consider could Christianity be true? If it is, there's a lot on the line. And I hope that you uh, would engage with counselors and your friends if you're not yet sure if you're saved. For others of us, maybe you consider yourself a Christian, but you've gotten comfortable on this earth. You're the soldier deployed on mission, but you've gotten, you've kind of uh, let your guard down. You've gotten too comfortable on earth. I want to encourage you, lean into your small group. Lean into God's grace that maybe you've forgotten your mission, but that's why we gather each week so that we could be reminded of the mission and be deployed out each week in order to reach the world for Jesus. Heaven is your home. And for those of us here, maybe we do consider ourselves Christians and we are faithful on earth, but it's just tough. It's just tough to endure life. Again, I want to encourage you that what do we expect? If we follow Jesus and he was persecuted, we will also be persecuted. But endure as the apostles and the martyrs and the saints of old, as they endured, so you endure. Lean into the church. Ultimately, rely on God's grace. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the perfecter and founder of your faith. Because one day, you're going to die. One day, I'm going to die. And my hope for every person here is that we will die with such solid hope, knowing that we will be saved by Jesus the moment we pass from this life into the next. So here's my big idea for today. I can't even read it. Christian, you are called to sojourn on earth as temporary residents while you eagerly await your Savior in Jesus in your true home in heaven. That's what I want us to take away uh, from today. I pray tonight that God would open your eyes spiritually, that you and I would see that earth, my life in Walnut, Diamond Bar, Chino Hills, I'm just a temporary resident. Sooner or later, I'm going to move out and I'm going to meet my maker. And my final destination is either heaven or hell, Jesus or the world. And I hope that the imperfect but genuine faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, um, I hope that it will inspire and build up your imperfect but genuine faith as we eagerly await a Savior, Jesus from heaven. So let me pray for us. Lord, I, we come before you knowing that we are worthy of your wrath that nothing good that we have done can allow us to be justified in your sight. 
and that we are sojourners on this earth only because your blood forgives us, cleanses us. And as we live out the remainder of our lives on earth, we have a mission. Love you and love others so that others may see you through our eyes. I pray, God, for the non-believers in this room, Lord, that you would become, um, not that you become real because you are real, but that their hearts would be open to perceive you as you truly are. And I pray for the genuine believers in this room that you would give them grace to endure. This life can seem long, difficult, and it can be a struggle. But I pray, Lord, that we remember that as we are faithful each day, one day we will pass from this life into the next, and we will uh, be with you forever, and you will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death will be no more. God, may that be our hope each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.